This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe today. The Big Interview, intriguing lives, remarkable careers, and gripping stories. I'm Sonal Rupani, alongside Chris McCarty and Robbie Greenfield. We're all talking all things Ness Knight today. Yeah, Ness, I thought this was a really interesting chat with her. She is, uh, she's, as I say, an adventurer. She's a documentary maker, survivalist, speaker. You know the type. We've had quite a few oh, on yes. this show. Um, and Ness has done some amazing expeditions in her own in her own uh, field she's done expeditions in america in south america in namibia which we're going to hear about she's paddleboarded a thousand miles she cycled solo across america that was back in 2012 she became the first woman to swim the river thames from source all the way through to london that was back in 2013 in 2016 and this is what we'll get into a little later she cycled solo and self-supported across the northern nabib namib desert region of Namibia from the Kunin River to Swakopmund. That sounds impressive. It was, uh, yeah, really, uh, when you say, when you talk about exploration, and I offended her greatly by saying, is there anything else left to explore, Ness, at least above oh. ground? She was like, of course there is. You know, it's not the golden age anymore. It's mm. not the heyday of, of Sir Ranulph Fiennes, etc. but there's still a lot. And, and it's, her approach has, has changed. And I think, I think it's fair to say that when we've spoken to some of these individuals, a lot of it is driven by a desire. They feel like they've got something to prove. Yeah. And a lot of it is a kind of ego war with themselves. I, I'm set my, setting myself this challenge to prove to myself that I can do it. Mm. And Ness used to be like that, but she's changed tack recently. And only in the last couple of months, what she was actually going to do, or what she'd set her, set her heart on doing until very recently, was something historic in the world of endurance expeditions, but circumstances and this change in mindset inspired a new approach. A few years ago now, actually, I, I spent a long, long time beginning the, the very tough road to get to the start line of a Pacific crossing to become the first female to row from North America to Australia. And I went out for one of my, my training journeys to row from um, the, the west coast of the USA to Hawaii. And it all just disintegrated. The, the team I was supposed to, be, supposed to be going to just had disbanded and it all just fell apart. And I just thought, you know what, goodness, you know, the, the stress and the strain to get this going, just to spend nine months on my own, you know, when I eventually get to the start line of the real expedition, it's, it's a hell of a lot to commit to. And I just thought, do I want to be alone for that long, really? And I, I think that's the thing with these kind of expeditions, when you spend that long away on your own in, in very, very tough and extreme conditions, you, you have to really know that this is a time in your life that that's what you want to do. Right. And I realized that there were stories out there that were bigger than me and just my own world and my mental struggle to, to push through the limits and the boundaries of what is humanly possible. And I realized I was, I was becoming more interested through all of my expeditions in other people's stories. So the, the indigenous communities that we pass through on our travels and uh, a lot of the environmental issues that we, we stumble across naturally because of where we're going on these expeditions. <clears throat> and, and I realized that I, I wanted to tell the story of marine life and what was happening closer to home. So that evolved into uh, sailing around the UK and that was all going to be about marine conservation. So it's a huge, huge, huge shift now uh, from the focus going from me more outward towards what is happening in the world and, and really discovering how technology and how collaboration 
can hugely, hugely change our issues that we face today. We, you know, we have all the tools and technology to fix all the problems that we're facing today. So that seems like a more wholesome and hearty direction to go in the future. It's interesting that because a lot of these adventurers, explorers, call them what you will, that we speak to, they're all very positive. It's all kind of me, me, me. And, and you always get the impression that they're not really ready or willing to give you a negative answer mm-hmm. or a, a negative no. mindset where well, they're simply not programmed no, to. No, they're not. Right. Because they can't, they don't want to let any negative thoughts in. They don't want to allow themselves to to dwell on negative things. And Ness is one of these people who's extremely positive as well. And you'll, you'll get a sense for that. But I just thought it was a lot more, I think, ultimately, as you mature, and she did say in her 20s, she was much more driven and she was much more motivated to do these incredible challenges that we, we outlined. But she's now at a point in her life where she wants something that's going to resonate yeah. a bit more and that's a, bit, a little bit more fulfilling. And, and I told her that we'd spoken to Sir Ranulf, the great Sir Ranulf, and he explained that back in the day, in the 1970s or in the 70s, you needed something utterly extreme to get the funding yeah. for these expeditions. And the tendency with those kind of things was to become embroiled in this, in this ego war. So had Ness therefore changed her approach to being what she would interpret as an explorer? Everybody's trying to be at the top, outdo each other, be seen. And the kind of content that's getting created out there is is pushing people to try and become more dramatic in what they do to try and be heard and seen. And I think that's a dangerous game to play. And I think historically, you know, it has happened. Um, even outside of social media, we've seen it. Um, you know, the, the, the kind of expeditions that we've seen previously from the great legendary explorers and adventurers. And I found myself going down that road too. It's a bit of a, a bit of a rabbit hole, really, is that mm. you start out and many of us have started out when we were young, you know, I was in my early 20s. And I, I had at that age something to prove to the world and to myself. And it's, it's a very, it's a fragile age to be going out there and also an important age to be going out there and, you know, bruising and scraping your knees and you, you get hugely influenced by your experiences. And I found that, uh, I just naturally wanted to be a storyteller and to go on my own personal mental and physical journey and to see how far I could push things. And then there was an audience and people were watching and listening into the story and suddenly I could make money from it. I was very much an accidental explorer and I never set out really to to have a career out of this, but people wanted to see more. They wanted to hear more. And, you know, these expeditions that we do are just, they, they are full of such highs, intense highs and intense lows that you cannot help that ending up being the place that you feel the most alive in your life. To get the funding, like Sir Ranafine said to you, you end up having to get more and more extreme with what you're doing and, you know, become the first of this and the first of that. And and suddenly you, you have to put the brakes on and say, is this, where am I now? You know, is this the direction that I want to go? And does this fit in with what I want out of life? Ness did say she will always be drawn to doing things that is that are one one construe as being completely bonkers. And I actually asked her if there was a specific expedition where she felt 
that she'd been legitimized, that she'd kind of made it as an explorer. And she said it was actually in Guyana where they were searching for the source of a river that had never been discovered before and actually found it in the middle of thick jungle. And she sort of thought, well, I've done all these endurance things, which is more in the realm of athletics, endurance stuff, yeah. you know, your paddle boarding and all that kind of thing. Now I've really gone and actually found something that, that had been lost, that had been undiscovered for all Indiana this time. Indiana Jones-esque. Yeah, it was Indiana Jones-esque. And I sort of made that fateful remark that it's tempting to think that we've kind of, we've ticked tick the box for exploration in this uh, or at least you know sitting in the in the confines of a, of an office or a, a studio or a home you think ah there's not much left else out there to kind of discover yeah. really it's not like Christopher Columbus or you know even Sir Ranulph striking out across the Antarctica she took umbrage with that remark needless to say let's hear what she had to say when I was in Namibia I did the very first ever solo crossing from the north to south uh, on a fat bike in the, the northern uh, region of Namibia there we started out trying to go from the south and we had to there was a few challenges and issues and we got shut down by government but that south, the region in the southwest of Namibia is uh, owned in part by De Beers Diamonds. And for 50 years, apart from those who work there, there's been pretty much no one who stepped foot in this huge swathe of Namibia. No one knows what's there. We don't know what the wildlife is like. It's been untouched because there's been almost no impact from humans in that region. Uh, they haven't really been touching the majority of it at all for, for mining. And so what, what's happening there? We don't know. Then we've got technology that is evolving year on year on year. And now we find that we can go deeper into cave systems. We can access locations because of the technology that we have and the tools that we have at our hand that we were never, ever able to go into and explore. And that opens up a whole new world for us. So for example, if you if you look at Steve Backshaw and his expeditions on top of Tepuis, that nobody knew what was up there. No one had been up there. There's these entire isolated ecosystems that are mind-boggling. What we find there, the species that we find there, the way that it works is just something we've never seen before. So I couldn't you know, disagree more with those who say that explore, exploration is dead. Maybe in the way that it used to be, where you could literally just go to any, you know, part of Africa and nothing yeah. at that time had been documented and nothing was known. And sure, that was the heyday. And it was raw and rugged back then because there weren't the tools and technology that we have now. And in a way, you know, I'm I'm sad I wasn't born half a half a century earlier because I think that's that's, you know, that's really testing and rugged and I love that. Um, but now we're into a new era of exploration where it just looks different. That's you told, Robbie. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I, I piped down after that. <laughs> I was only saying it kind of playing devil's advocate, you know. Come on, Ness. It was, uh, I didn't really believe yeah, it it's myself. It's interesting. I mean, that it will be news to an awful lot of people there that De Vere's actually own a huge, and she put it beautifully, swathe of mm. southern part of Namibia. That's extraordinary yeah. to What me. I was surprised by is she's saying that De Beers hasn't been mining that area. So it was, yeah. she said it hadn't been mining that area. So I guess they own so much land. And you just in know that, that one day they're gonna they're gonna mm. go in there and run roughshod. Oh. But speaking of Namibia, that's where Ness did her flat bike crossing. And it turns out that was an eventful expedition, to say the least. And it involved a particularly nervy foray <laughs> into lion territory. I, I ended up in this ravine system um, and following a riverbed. And at the time I was going through lion territory. So 
I had to have a lion warden with me, otherwise they wouldn't have let me through that conservation area. And so he was in his Land Rover and he tended to be pretty relaxed about everything. You know, this was his patch and he would drive probably, you know, five, 10 kilometers ahead and and then hold back a little bit and we'd be on radio contact with each other. And uh, this was a day that the temperature had gone up and broken 50 degrees Celsius. I was not with it. I was not okay. And I was desperate to get through lion territory. So I was pushing hard, very, very hard. And I'd sweated out all all of the liquid in my body. I was, I was not myself. I remember cycling along and being in quite a panic, you know, worrying about this noise and that noise and that rock fall next to me uh, because he was five kilometers, Fritz was, the lion warden was five kilometers ahead. And what if lions cross our path? Well, he didn't see that they were coming because he's in a straight line. I, I wouldn't be tremendously reassured if he was five kilometers away, to be quite honest with you. No, see, he was tracking. He was just taking the Land Rover and, and seeing what, what tracks were going on there. And um, and he said to me, I remember the, that morning, I said, you know, what, what are, what's going to happen if I come across Lion out here? And he says, well, he just laughed at me and uh, in a stereotypical way that they do in Africa where it's all quite blasé and relaxed. He was like, well, you know, good luck because actually when you're on a bicycle moving through the landscape, you look like a really tasty, you know, buck. So you're number one on their list of what they want to take down, to be honest. And I don't know how serious or joking he was about that. But um, yeah, it didn't, it didn't help matters and frayed, frayed nerves and edges. And so I, as I'm winding my way through this riverbed and trying to get to the other side to pop out into the open wilderness, I get a radio call from Fritz and he says, Ness, Ness, come in. I'm like, Fritz, yes. He says, uh, listen, you, you're going to come around the river bend down, follow that down to the right around another river bend, and you're, you're going to look to your right-hand side, and you're going to see in the sky vultures circling. And when you look down about, I think it was 100 or 200 feet away, you're going to see jackal on the ground, and that's, that is a fresh line kill from last night. Oh God! Great, great. Okay, so, so, uh, you know, what do I do? And he said, "Well, we'll just, just be aware of it, and I'm going to go on ahead." Yeah. Okay. <laughs> this is, this is really helping me a lot here, and I pushed very, very hard to get through that region. And now I'm in, I'm in a riverbank and sandbanks, and I'm sinking in, and it's just, you know, it's, it's like a bad dream where you're trying to run away from something, and you're in sinking sand, and it feels like you're coming through, you know, you're trying to run through treacle. That was what it felt like. I had an out-of-body experience where I, I was cycling, but I was above myself looking at down at myself. So I was obviously hugely dehydrated. And as I come around this riverbed uh, bend and I, I look and I see the vultures and, and the jackals to the side there, my world goes black. And I wake up in the back of a Land Rover, of Fritz's Land Rover. And I, it turns out I had passed out and I started wandering around where my bike was um non not consciously i i i have no memory of this whatsoever and this is right where this lion line kill had happened and he happened to have had this feeling that he must come back now and he found me luckily and he put me in the car and, and then we 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 drove off we actually yeah yeah we decided that was that was going to be a calling it for a day and i needed to go and get hydrated and actually take take my health quite seriously and recover so that was a wake up call <laughs> oh a wake up call and then some yeah, that forced her to do a bit of introspection and also to gain a new respect for nature as well and the environment that she was venturing into. And I did ask her this final question. When she looks back on her career in adventure, 
Which expedition stands out as being more fulfilling, more special than the rest? And she had this to say. I would probably say that Guyana expedition in South America and that would take second place and first place would probably be this year when I went out to do survival training with the sand bushmen in northeastern Namibia. As I said to you, they they are the most ancient civilization on the planet. 200,000 years worth of civilization successfully come through all the way to this day. And I went out there and, and they were teaching me, you know, how to make the tools to survive out there, traps and, you know, how to look for water, how to hunt, all those sort of things. And what I got was something far beyond that, which was watching them as a community. They actually don't have a hierarchy. There's, 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 no, there's no treatment of anyone above anyone else. And I think that's probably why they have been the most successful civilization on the planet that still lives to today is it's not about ego. It's not about me and then you separate. Um, it's not about am I above you. So they share everything. They actually, interestingly enough, they don't, they don't have a word for no. They do not say no. So when outsiders come in and say, can I have this, you know, can we do that? They don't know how to say no, which was very interesting because as a small community with themselves, they never needed to say no. When someone came in 20, 30 years ago to, to spend time with the Bushmen, they said, you know, have you guys ever had a war? And the Bushmen said, well, what does war mean? And the guy explained to them what war means when two different parties or countries or peoples come and, and you know, fight each other for whatever reason that may be. And they said, oh, yes, you know, we've, we've had war. We've had a war. We, we had one once in our living memory. And he said, well, what happened? And they said, well, you know, there were two brothers and somebody had bought a pot and they they had a war and they fought each other over the pot. And then it was very quickly sorted out. And, and yes, no, we know what war is. It's terrible. And it brings perspective, you know, and they're hugely peaceful. And what I learned from them, and this is the reason why I'm buying a farm with Jake, my, my other half, is that they, they taught me how to, um, you know, collaborate, how to live harmoniously, how to have utmost respect for nature to, to work with it, not against it when you come to what you need to live off of and survive off of and to re, you know, readjust my thinking of how I want to impact this world and how I want to also live as a family unit, incredible family units that they have out there. Their method of surviving is so simple and their happiness doesn't come from the need to have the next big thing or the most money or the biggest house or the fanciest car. They know that real happiness is before all of that. Those are nice things to have, but happiness comes with the harmony of how you live with your people and your landscape. A lot of morals to be taken from that story. Ness, big thank you to her. She's now a children's author, I should tell you. She's published a series called Adventure Starts at Bedtime. It looks like a really good read for young kids. She's also venturing into the world of survival documentaries. She's produced a couple for Red Bull Media House. And you can follow her on Instagram. She's at Ness underscore night. Thank you for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love it if you could subscribe, rate, and give us a review. This podcast was presented by Chris McCarty, Sonal Rupani, and Robbie Greenfield, and produced by Tom Paul Smith. We hope you join us next time on The Big Interview.